Hello and welcome to the Scottish Clans. My name's Clint. Thank you for joining me. For my listeners in the U.S., I hope you had an awesome Thanksgiving holiday. I hope it was filled with friends and loved ones and family members and and I hope your plates were full and and I hope it was an enjoyable experience for you. Um, today, before I get too far into what I'm going to talk about today, let me talk about my sponsor, USA Kilts. They've got an awesome YouTube channel called USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions. And they have, they never cease to present useful and interesting content. So go check them out there at that YouTube channel. And also their storefront is usakilts.com. Check that out if you're in the market for anything that has anything to do with Scottish heritage. Um, even you can find it a little bit more broad into some Irish and Welsh stuff. They Believe it or not, and I addressed this in an episode a long time ago, but there are Irish and Welsh tartans and maybe some other ones. There's, I know, the American military branches, the USA military branches, I believe each have their own tartan. My branch of the military, of the army that I'm in, the Civil Affairs actually has our own branch tartan. So I'm not telling you that those tartans are way back and old and authentic, but they are there, and I think they definitely fit what the concept of the kilt has become since, I don't know, the Victorian era. So go and check them out, and for the kilts, for the... Anything else that has anything to do with uh, the Celtic or the Scottish culture on there. So that's at usakilts.com. All right. Um, I also want to make a note before I get too far into what I'm going to talk about here that for those of you who've reached out to me, um, I have, I'm seeing your stuff. For some of you, I've been good about responding. I hope that I've been good about responding to everybody, but I may have missed one or two, and I'd actually like to maybe in the next episode address some of the things you brought up because some of you are making some really good points. You're offering some really good feedback, and I sure appreciate that. So once again, if you hear something in this episode that you want to respond to, you can reach out to me at thescottishclans at gmail.com. Some of you, as you reach out to me on Messenger, you found me on the Facebook group, Scottish Clans is the name of it, and you've just reached out on Messenger, and and more than one of you have said, oh, I hope this is a, an appropriate way on Messenger because it's kind of private. No, that's a perfectly fine way, an acceptable way to get a hold of me. So if you want to find me on there and that's a, a method of contact that you use, then go ahead and use Messenger from Facebook. Um, don't just throw a post up on the Facebook group as there it's getting big. It's over 13,000 members, and the... There's more and more. As it gets bigger and bigger, there's more and more posts on there. I'd like to thank my administrators on there for helping me keep a handle on things. They actually do way more on there than I do, and I just needed a bigger team, and I reached out to some gentlemen, and they were really good about jumping in there and have done, a, I think, a great job. I know I've seen some criticism on there for them, but um, I really do appreciate what they're doing. And so go on that. There's some really cool posts on there, some really good content on the Facebook group. And so I encourage you to go on there. But if you just throw something on there hoping that I'll see it, you might be disappointed. So use those other methods. Also, if you want to leave me a, a review or reach out to me, you can also use Podbean. You can search out, because that's the actual the web host that I use on there. You can leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, yeah, those are, the best, those are the best methods that I lined out there. So if you see, uh, hear anything on this that strikes a chord with you, please feel free to, to reach out to me 
on there on those those uh, those platforms. Whether it's an unanswered question that you have, whether it's uh, something you might feel like I got a little bit wrong, and uh, or maybe just something else that you'd like to contribute, like ah, oh, you didn't mention this, and this is kind of a good aspect. And I've had some really good experiences with people doing that in the times past. So thank you if you've done that. All right. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, let's talk about tonistry part two. So in the last episode where we left off was that we have this system called tonistry where the succession for the Scottish clan chiefs was not just a simple father to oldest son, father to oldest son, which is usually referred to as primogeniture. The tonistry system is where the chief designates the next male, the next leader of the clan, who may or may not be his oldest son. Now, we're talking about this doesn't really, it doesn't really count as tonistry if there is no eldest son and somebody else is chosen, because then there was no options. We're talking about when there's sons, when there's cousins, when there's uncles, brothers, other men who are usually fairly closely related to the chief. So there is some hereditary things going on here, but it doesn't need to be the oldest son. And the chief designates who that's going to be before he passes away, and that person who's been de- designated is the tonist. And so you see this, actually, for those of you who are um, Outlander fans. You see this there where, in this season one, I haven't watched all of season one, let alone subsequent seasons, but you do see this in one of the episodes where Jamie Fraser is a... Up and you know he's he's a possible candidate for the chiefship of the Mackenzies because he's closely tied to them by kin. But um, anyway, you can get farther into that episode, and it's been a while since I've seen it. But they they include him as a possible candidate, and and really what I posted in the last episode, my point was that after looking at seven different clans from different parts of the Highlands, from the Gaeltacht, for where the Highland clans were operating and functioning, and I. I took basically from the first on-record chief that that clan had cleared up through to the mid-1700s, where after the Battle of Culloden and the, at least the military power of the clans were crushed, you can make an argument about did the clanship stop there or did it continue for a little while afterwards? Was it beginning to erode before that? That's a whole different conversation. I'm just telling you how far up in time I trace this. And my point, after looking at these seven clans through that duration and looking at who was succeeding who throughout down the lines of chiefs, that it sure looked to me that it was really primogeniture was the favored system going clear back. And so the first recorded chief for several of these kindreds were in the 1300s and then clear up through the mid-1700s. And it didn't really look like there was a lot of cases where somebody who wasn't the oldest son or the only son succeeded the chief. And in cases where it wasn't a son, it was because there wasn't a son, and you needed to find another closely related male representative of that bloodline to serve as the headship of the, the head of the kin, kindred. They were forced to go outside of that line. And so really looked like primogeniture was being followed from about as early as we have any of these clan chiefs recorded. Now, 
so the really, really cool and good news that I've got for you guys is that shortly after that episode posted, I was able to obtain a copy of a book that I've been looking at for or looking for to get my hands on it for a really long time. And it was Alison Cathcart's Kinship and Clientage. So I this is a book that just I've read had read scholarly reviews on it. I've read snippets of it here and there. And it just seemed to be right up the alley of everything that I'm interested as it pertains to this podcast and and this part of my historical interest. Years, guys, years. I, I tried when I was writing my master's thesis clear back. I think I finished that in 2014, November, October 2014. And it was something that kept on popping up in sources, but I couldn't get my hands on it. Um, I could, but I was unwilling to drop 150 bucks for this book. And and what I, I ended up being able to access it through going to the library at BYU, because I live in, in southern Utah cam- County, so that wasn't too far of a drive in. And they had it on electric copy, and I could get on there, and I could read it, and, and I just and I obtained a copy of it actually through the library. And so... Um, I'm going to be going from Cathcart's. For those of you who don't know who Alison Cathcart is, she is an associate professor at the University of Stirling in Scotland. And so to have a, a person that's in that kind of a position and who has that kind of a, you know, a lot of the information that we're getting on, on the Scottish clans are not from as scholarly a source. And so to be able to get my hands on this work was a real treat for me. So... Um, so I've got it now, and it actually greatly affected the information that I was putting out in the last episode. And it, had I had this work before doing that episode, it really probably would have changed a lot of the content. So this is the part two. This is where we get to go into deeper, uh, I take a deeper look at how chiefs in Highland Scotland were succeeded for the head of the kindred. So... What I'd like to do is I'd like to actually read a little bit um, from the work that I was able to obtain as I switch things over here on my computer, going back and forth, back and forth. Um, and I'm going to start on page 71, and I'm and just going to—I think it's just better that I just read it from Cathcart's book here rather than trying to just put it all together and summarize it because she says it really well here. And so, and I, pr- I probably think that's better for you guys to just hear her say it because she's the scholar, not me. And so it'll it'll take my filter out. So hopefully this is this is informative for you for those of you who want to really know how clans worked and how things functioned inside. And you want to strip away a little bit of the romance on it. You want to re- like how did it really go? Here it is. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna start on page seventy one. Quote: Throughout the period in question. Well, I, let me break on the quote there real quick. The period in question, she, she, she seems to focus here um, mostly on, while she does dive into other elements of, or other parts in the timeline of the history of Scotland, she's focusing mostly on the late 1400s and in through the 1500s, throughout the 1500s. And she, the reason why this is such a cool work, another reason that I've mentioned in addition to the earlier ones, is that She's getting really into the Central and Eastern Highlands a lot, which don't get, I don't think, as much focus as the Western Highlands and Isles of Scotland. You have, and part of that's because the biggest, most powerful clans in Scottish history, Highland clans, are 
I would argue that it's the the Campbells and the McDonald's. And the Campbells were a West Highland clan and the McDonald's were a Hebridean clan with branches on the mainland. And and so I think that's one reason why uh, there's a little bit more well-researched. There's better sources, maybe in some cases. I don't know. But it seems like that part of Scotland, when it comes to the clans, gets a lot of the attention. And the Eastern Highlands or Central Highlands don't get quite so much. And so that's where she is focusing a lot. And so I really think that's cool that... Um, even though some of our examples that I'm going to share with you branch kind of into the Western Highlands, she and, and to be more specific, she talks a lot about the Macintoshes. So for those of you who are Macintosh connected, this will be a real treat for you. All right, <clears throat> but it does go into some others. So follow along. Back to my quote. Throughout the period in question, a superficial glance at the line of succession would emphasize the prevalence of father-to-son succession within clan society, but this pattern may be the result of any combination of factors. The early death or absence of brothers or uncles of the current chief, rather than any con- any conscious policy, could result in what appears to be strict father-to-son succession. If a chief's son was of a suitable age before his father died, the wider clan may have approved his nomination or designation as tonist during his father's lifetime. There was not necessarily a divergence in these system, systems of succession, nor were they at odds with the, quote, feudal law which demanded a legitimate male heir. Although the influences of lowland political society, including succession practices, filtered through to the highlands in earlier centuries, primogeniture may not have been the dominant or preferred regulatory system in 16th century. Some evidence does point to the principle of priority of birth, but succession was manipulated to suit the needs of the lineage. As Boardman has shown for the Campbells in the 15th century, a discretionary element existed that allowed for elder brothers or half-brothers to be passed over, perhaps on account of some disability, while at other times charters were used to ensure the succession of a preferred heir who is not necessarily the eldest son. This view is not supported by genealogical histories. A 17th century manuscript history of the grants suggests that primogeniture was the prevailing method of succession. It contains an account of the birth of twins to John Grant, son of Duncan Grant, first of Fruchy. A midwife was employed at the birth to tie a piece of string around the wrist of the hand that appeared first as a mark of distinction. This hand, however, disappeared, and as the other twin was the first to be delivered, he later became heir to his father on account of seniority of birth, while the younger twin became head of the cadet branch of Balandalach. Clearly fabricated, it is an account that says more about 17th century clan politics and the attempts of one branch of the family to legitimize its claims to superiority over another, as for several generations the family... Of the, ba- of the grants of Balandalic asserted their right to the chiefship of the clan. In order to discredit such a claim, this account was inserted into clan genealogy. Examination of succession within, chiefly line, within the chiefly line of the Macintoshes suggests that strict father-to-son succession prevailed, and failing a legitimate heir to the, the position was, would pass to the nearest male relative. However, as source evidence is often minimal as it is it it is hard to support what manuscript and clan histories assert, as they are written from a, pers- a certain perspective. Family historians try to portray the clan as pro-crown, selecting evidence that 
emphasizes consistent loyalty to the monarchy despite the contradictions this produces. Often there was a more immediate agenda, with histories written to discredit rival claims of cadet branches, manipulating and embellishing the genealogy as and when necessary. Consequently, succession to the chiefship is often portrayed as following the principles of primogeniture, diminishing the claims of collateral or cadet branches through assertions of illegitimacy. In the late 15th and early 16th century, this was the case for the Macintosh chiefship. Now, before I go in, so stop the quote there. Before I go to talk about the Macintosh example that she gives, I'm just going to throw out there, just kind of to sum up a little bit there, that so the clan does what the clan needs to do. And when I say the clan, I'm talking about the leading members of the clan. So the, the senior cadet branch representatives. And so they they have generally a group and get together and they're like, what's what what is the clan what's the best for the clan right now? And sometimes that was primogenitor, but sometimes it wasn't, and sometimes it didn't follow primogenitor or tonistry. It was just what is best for the clan. And then subsequent genealogists or um clan historians maybe a generation, two, or more later, would reach back and doctor up the genealogy and make it look like one system or the other was strictly adhered to, usually primogeniture, because that would show a pro-crown leaning, whereas that wasn't necessarily the case. That's not what was going on. The clan did what was best for the clan, regardless of what system of succession was used. And they would use, they would say, well, so-and-so is illegitimate. Well, that wasn't necessarily the case. The documentary evidence doesn't support that, but that's what supports the legitimacy of the branch that was went that was that they went with. And there are different reasons why that person would be that they did choose would be the best for the clan. And in some cases, um, the the thing that made them better wasn't necessarily their personal prowess in battle or their other traits that might be favorable. Sometimes it was a marriage connection. So so there is you know to a to another influential kindred or clan. So that doesn't really follow either system. It was just what was best and and so that's what they went with and was it wasn't tidy, but later genealogies make it look tidy. And going back to my previous episode, I just took a quick glance at father to son, father to son succession in these different chiefships. I did not dive it dive into it further as Cathcart has here, and that's where I thought the value of being able to follow up that last episode and share this with you. So I'm just going to go back in here and quote just a little bit more on this particular note. <clears throat> Uh, quote, in 1496, Duncan, 11th chief of the Macintoshes and Clan Hatton, died and was succeeded by his only son, Ferker. At this time, however, Ferker was imprisoned in Edinburgh, along with Kenneth Mackenzie, heir to the Clan Mackenzie. Before imprisonment, Ferker must have been regarded as heir and succeeded his father to the clan estates, for, in a charter dated at Dunbar, 7 December 1505, he made a a heritable grant of the main clan lands and offices to his cousin, William. <clears throat> this was followed by a back bond made by William in which he acknowledged the grant made to him and promised 
that whenever the said Ferker shall have lawful heirs male of his own body, and either he or they shall pay a certain sum of money to him or his heirs and assignees, he or they shall renounce the same again in their favor. This exchange of bonds was designed to ensure a peaceful succession and preservation of clan estate in the eventuality of Ferker's death without a legitimate male heir. Although William is not expressly mentioned as heir to Ferker, the grant of the core clan lands along with the bailiary of Lochaber was a clear message that William was regarded as next in line to the chiefship. William did have close kinship ties, but his choice as guardian was not according to principles of primogeniture, as he had an elder half-brother, Malcolm, son of his father's first marriage. In Macintosh genealogies, Malcolm has been dismissed as illegitimate, although documentary evidence suggests this was not the case. Malcolm's legitimacy and the political reasons as to why he was passed over in the succession may be questioned, but it was the importance of William's marital kinship with the Grants that elevated him to, his, to this prominence in Macintosh affairs. Local politics secured his succession to the chiefship, but it did not silence the rival claims of his half-brother based on hereditary right. And then it goes on to detail how his older half-brother Malcolm and his descendants actually pushed back for the lead leadership of the clan for you know a few generations. Now, there's a footnote down here that I want to throw in. So why was... William's marital, marital kinship to the Grants such a big deal. In the footnote, it says the Grants were emerging as an important local family in the Central Highlands, connected to the Earls of Huntley, and close kin ties with them would be advantageous for the Macintoshes. So it wasn't necessarily that... There's nothing in here that says that William possessed the best qualities for the chief, that he was he was stronger, faster, smarter, more talented. None of that. It was it was who he was married to, that the clan that the other leading members of the clan were found valuable, and so that's why he rose to the top as their candidate, passing by Malcolm, his older half brother. All right, so that doesn't seem to really follow any. You might be able to say that Ferker, the the chief, you might kind of say it was like an informal tonistry because it doesn't look like he was officially designated before Ferker's death. But Cathcart uses the fact that he um, signed a bunch of the core clan lands over to him as acknowledging him as the next leadership of the kindred. Um, then I'm going to actually, for this next section, have to bounce backward in the... Um, in just not, not too far. We're still in the late 60s, page, page 67 through 69 of this book, to show a few other examples I think would be interesting for you in showing that the chief of the clan was still answerable to the clan. And and Cathcart does argue that as this became more so as you come out of the 12 and 1300s and into the 1400s and especially late 14s and 1500s, that the, the chief became ever more answerable to the clans, and, and he could lose his position, and which would affect the succession. So I choose to include it in this, in this particular topic of chiefly succession. Um, I think that I, I could cap it off here and then roll this up into another, make another episode out of this. But I think that while I'm just sitting down on this, I'm just going to push forward. And, and just so you know, I could, I could probably get numerous 
future episodes just out of this this work of Cathcart's here. I just, for me, it's just fascinating. Um, and it, it, yet, granted, it is more on the academic end of this subject. And, and I know some of you are listening to this podcast and these different episodes looking for the cool story. And so... So we're maybe we need to throw one of those in as the next episode. So I'm just going to keep going with this um, while we're on the subject instead of making a third episode. So this ep- this episode will be a little bit longer. But um, one thing I do want to, before I jump into this kind of next element of this, is just give a little bit more of a shout out to USA Kilts. They've really done well by me. They have... They have, um, when I was going through my process of, of buying my kilt from them, they were very diligent, super attentive to detail, noticed that my the size that I gave for one of my measurements doesn't fit a person as short as me. They noticed like, ah, eh, that's usually what people 661-ish are giving us. And they called me personally and 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 said, hey, we need to we need to work on this measurement a little bit and just make sure that it it's the right one. I thought that was awesome. Just such attention to detail, customer service, and then I have not had a second of buyer's remorse with this kilt. And that's important because kilts aren't cheap, right? Any of you who have priced kilts, that this is a this is a major purchase. And I didn't. I went for one of their middle mid level. I think it was the five yard kilt. So there, yeah, there's ones cheaper and there's ones more expensive. I went right in the middle, but it's a fine piece of clothing. And I don't usually spend that much money on clothing. You can ask my wife. Um, and I haven't had a second with such a major purchase. I haven't had a second of buyer's remorse. I have been. This has been a, a really good, um, p- really good product. So I'd stand by it, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it to you if I if I didn't really think it was quality product. And then not only are they selling quality products on usakilts.com, and not only do they have um, free shipping within the USA and awesome customer service, jump on over to their YouTube channel, USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions. There's some really cool content on, on there. Uh, they're really exploring the whole world around kilts, talking about... Um, they've had videos on, you know, what's it like wearing your kilt for the first time out in public and what do your friends think and, and how do you get up the courage to, you know, cause it's, it's different. And I'll admit like the first time I walked out into public and my wife, you know, she kind of was a little bit tentative about it. I think she'd admit, but you know what, it's cool. And that's just part of how we roll now. And, and I don't wear it everywhere I go. I'm not, uh, what Eric and Rocky over at USA kilts call a serial kilter, <laughs> but, um, but I, I'm not afraid to wear it in public either. And and I also love wearing it on hikes. So they got YouTube video that cover all of that stuff on USA Kilts and Celtic Tradition. So go over and check them out. All right. So back to this um, back to this element of the chiefs being answerable to the clan. And if the clan, if they don't, if they don't, if the chief doesn't continue to uphold their end of the bargain, uh, they might get the axe. And in some cases, literally. And so I'm going to start on page 67, and I'm just going to read off some examples of times when the chief did not live up to what was expected of him. And and one of these is going to actually, one of these examples that she includes here is going to be one that I actually did a whole episode on with the Battle of Blarnalania, or Battle of the Shirts. And that was between the McDonald's of Clan Rannell and the Frasers of Lovett, who... And it's the battle for the chiefship of Clan Ronald. So 
That'll, but that'll come in a second. Let me get back to the book here, and I quote, There are nonetheless a number of examples in Highland society that corroborate Buchanan's view. At the turn of the 16th century, Ian Allen, chief of the McDonald's of Keppoch, was deposed by the principal men of his clan because he was felt to be unfit to hold the office. Earlier in 1407, Ferker, ninth chief of the Macintoshes, voluntarily resigned his birthright and heritage because he was wholly given to ease, uh, end quote. In other words, he was too soft for the likes of the hard-charging Macintoshes. Um, quote, Another source stated Ferker being of a rather peaceable disposition and not wishing to join in any of the troubles of the time, stood down from the chiefship while his children are said to have relinquished any claim they might have, they might have over the chiefship and clan estate. Ferker resigned the chiefship in favor of his uncle Malcolm, who, with the general applause and approval of all his friends, was declared chief. The choice of Malcolm McIntosh as 10th chief involved no radical move for the clan, as, according to the principles of hereditary right, he was the next legitimate male heir. Thus, the chiefship remained within the same descent group, suggesting a more regularized regularized method of succession <clears throat> to the office. While much has been made in Macintosh genealogies of Malcolm's chiefly attributes, he was described as a man of lofty and contriving mind, of moderate stature, very patient in enduring every kind of hardship, of hunger, cold, labor, and want of rest, fortunate in war, and well instructed in every kind of virtue. <clears throat> In the, in the mid-16th century, the clan still had considerable say in the governing of its affairs. The minority of Lachlan, 16th chief, saw Gilbert Kennedy, 3rd Earl of Cassillis, take control of clan affairs. <clears throat> Excuse me. Following his death, an assize, an assize, I'm not really familiar with that, this illegal word, was held in 20, on 21 April 1561, consisting of numerous satellite kindreds of the clan Hatton, including the McPhersons, McQueens, and McFarkers, where it was agreed that Donald McIntosh of Killarney was able to take control of clan affairs because he was 25 years old and nearest agnet of the young chief. Now, let me pause on the quote real quick right there. A couple things I thought were of interest back there. The minority of Lachlan, 16th chief, saw Gilbert Kennedy, 3rd Earl of Cassillis, take control of clan affairs. Isn't that interesting? So I didn't, I didn't look to see what connection Gilbert Kennedy had to the Macintoshes, but it's of note because the Kennedys were a Ayrshire, clan. And I am going to use the word clan here, because some of you purists think that the word clan should not be used outside of the Gaeltacht. But guess what? This part of southwest Scotland during this time period would have been Gaeltacht. That's right. Um, and you can go back to my uh, the um, episode that I did on, I, I think I actually did a couple of them, I think they're chained together, on the, the Kennedys. And they were known as, they're, they're talking about, referred to certain of the Kennedys referred to as Ken Kennel, or Ken Kennel, or some kind of, basically, Ken Kennel, the head of the, of the kin group, is how that could be translated. So we're using a Gallic term in Ayrshire down in southwest Scotland. And so there's evidence that the Kennedys were actually, for a lot of generations, Gallic-speaking.
Okay, so that, but but still, that leaves the point that they're so far geographically removed from the Macintosh. So that bears a little further consideration. So some of you who want to pursue that, jump into that and get back with us and see wh- how why was a Kennedy helping run clan affairs while a, the up and coming chief is too young. That that would be an interesting note. If you have that, reach out. Um, back to the quote: following his death, and was oh no. That's not where I left off. Oh, and another thing I thought was interesting that Ferguson are usually referred to in that term, but here they're referred to as McFerkers. So just a just an interesting note. Back to the quote. An incident in the 1540s is equally ambiguous regarding succession to the chiefship. John Moidertach, although illegitimate, succeeded to the chiefship of the clan Ranald following the death of his father, Alexander McRory. Moidertach was later imprisoned because of unlawful behavior, and during this, this time, an attempt was made to seize the chiefship by Ronald McRory, half-brother of the late Alexander McRory, who had been raised by his mother's kin, the Frasers of Lovett. On his release from prison, Moidertach displaced Ronald from the chiefship by gaining a decisive victory at the Battle of Blarnalania. This example raises two issues regarding the office of the chief whether it could be seized by force, and if this was contrary to the wishes of the clan, and extent to which Ronald's chiefship was accepted initially because he had some claim through hereditary right. It is difficult to draw any firm conclusions, as there is little evidence. If there was an elective or contractual element to the office, it could be argued that Malcolm McIntosh became chief because he was regarded as capable of fulfilling the demands of chiefship. The case of John Moidertuck suggests that being fortunate in war was more important than other attributes and therefore his military victory over Ranald was decisive in regaining the chiefship. Indeed, while the clan Ranald inflicted a heavy defeat on the Frasers of Lovett at Blarnalania, more important was the gathering of clan Ranald's support behind Moidertuck and not Ronald McRory. Yet, Ronald McRory, a serious contender for the chiefship, had close kin ties to the chiefship, emphasizing the importance of hereditary right on the occasion. All right, so there you have three examples of a time where the clan rallied behind somebody who wasn't necessarily the, necessarily the next in line. Now, I, there is a, just like I shared that footnote with you before on the previous passage, there's an interesting footnote here on page 68 regarding the um, the clan, the clan Ronald situation. Um, so this is footnote number 35. It says, Alan McCrory, chief of clan Ronald died in 1509 and was succeeded by his son, Ronald from his marriage to Florence, daughter of Donald McKeon of Ardnamurkin. Ronald in turn was succeeded by his son, Dougal in 1513. Now listen to this. This is interesting. Due to the general disapproval of him as chief of the clan, for his extreme cruelty and crimes against his own kindred, and for his failure to protect their heritage, Dougal was put to death, his children cut off from the line of succession, and control of the clan passed to his brother, Alexander. After Alexander's death in 1530, the chiefship was conferred on his illegitimate son, John Moidertach. Okay, that's interesting. So in that, in that Clan Ronald example, you have the clan rallying behind the one who's supposed to be illegitimate, John Moidertach, and not behind Ronald Galda, his his uncle, 
it was Fraser of Lovett's support that he had on his side. And if you go back into my episode on that, the Battle of Blarnalania or the Battle of the Shirts, you can we you can go in way more detail on the battle itself. But I think for here we focus on just who the clan decides to rally behind. So that's really interesting. Um, Guys, I hope this takes what we started last episode and fleshes it out. I know there is a long gap between the last episode and this one, and I apologize for that. Life is getting a little busy. I have tried not to just kick the podcast to the curb, but we're going to have to expect a little bit longer gaps in between episodes. And I know they say that to really be successful in this stuff, your content, you got to be regular with your content. You got to put that stuff out. But guess what? I don't do this for a living. And before a podcaster and before being a historian or anything else that I might be that's connected with this, I'm a dad, a husband, and in those roles, I've got to provide and I've got to make sure not just I'm providing economically for the family, but that I'm being there for for all the other stuff that they need out of a dad and, and that my wife needs out of a husband. So that's, that's, and my kids are, I got four kids and they're getting a little bit older and they're starting to get involved in stuff. And so I'm, I'm trying to keep, keep plugging along with this, but I'm getting a little bit longer gaps in between episodes, but I'm not quitting on it. And I'm still studying in the meantime, you know, that's how I came across this this work of Cathcarts, which I this is awesome, and I just can't wait to. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I have read several other parts of it that could produce other episodes. But we'll try to we'll try to throw a few of those, you know, maybe a clan highlight, like five interesting things about this clan or that clan, or maybe a cool story in there before we get academic again. Just because I know that there's a lot a broad range of people listening to this, and some of you just want the cool stories, and you don't really give a darn. Um, about stripping romanticism away from the clans. You just want to hear cool stories, and I totally get it, and that's probably at its core why I'm such in, so, so much into history. But there's others of you who are into this stuff, and you, you're far enough into the cool history stuff that you're really willing to take it, you're ready to take it to another level, and so you're going to start like, okay, how does this stuff really work? And that's what we're getting at here, trying to figure out how this stuff really work. So consider last episode a warm-up, and this episode, we're diving into it a little bit deeper, and not because I dove into it deeper, but because Professor Cathcart did here, and so we're grateful for her work, and she's not, by the way, she's not paying me to say that, she just, she's just putting out some good stuff. Actually, this, this book's a little bit old, so uh, maybe I need to get up to date on some of her more recent publications, but, but I sure appreciate it, and I sure appreciate you guys for listening. Yeah. It's a big deal, and I sure appreciate those of you who have reached out. So, for those of you listening, an invitation I make to you is um, share this episode with somebody that you think would like. You know, you, do you know somebody who who comes from a Scottish background, but they don't know a lot about it? Maybe they got a Scottish last name. Um, do you know that they're just history buffs? Maybe they'd be interested from that angle. Go ahead and, and share this. There's usually a, a, a button that you can share with because you, you're listening to us on different platforms. And I know for a fact there is on Podbean and Apple Podcasts and Spotify. There's always way, ways to share. So, so please do that. And if you got something in here that you thought was interesting, something that you, uh, you know, I don't, if you, there's something in here you need to correct, it's not you, it's, it's not correcting me. It's 
correcting Professor Cathcart. So I don't know if you know if you're, but maybe there's somebody who's got a pretty extensive background on this and throw it out there anyway, you know, who cares? So reach out to me at the Scott, at, at the, the email is at, sorry, the email is thescottishclans at gmail.com. And you can go, you can find me real easy on the, the Facebook group called Scottish Clans. And if you want to use Messenger, reach out to me on that. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this. And well, I'll try, try, try to get out another one before Christmas. And until then, Marsh and Leven Drasta.